So as we come into the book of Daniel this morning, we are jumping into a world where God's people are defeated because of their sin. They're living in exile in Babylon. And they are without hope that God is going to fulfill his promises to his people that he gave to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and David. And as they're living in exile, as they're feeling this crushing defeat, they're probably asking themselves some questions. How long do we have to suffer through the hardships of exile and persecution? Is our God really sovereign over all things? If God is sovereign, then when is he going to come and when is he going to deliver us? When will he finally bring his forever kingdom that he has promised? And how are we supposed to live faithfully as God's people when it feels like everything around us is falling apart? And yet God in his goodness didn't leave them without answers. But instead, he chose a man by the name of Daniel. A man whom he would give visions and dreams to help answer these very questions that, so that his people would be encouraged to remain faithful within their current circumstances. And so then the question is, who is Daniel? Daniel was a young Jewish exile from a noble family, and he was chosen by, by King Nebuchadnezzar to be educated in the ways of the Babylonians so that ultimately he could work in service to the king. As it says in Daniel 1, verses 3 to 5, then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, used without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, uh, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king, <clears throat> that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. But more than merely being a noble and educated man of Judah, he was a man who remained faithful to God. And as it says, he was blessed by him with skills in literature, in wisdom, and as I already said, in visions and dreams. Let's look also to Daniel 1.8 where it says, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Or then in Daniel 1.17, As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And in blessing Daniel this way, God would use him to change kings' hearts, to protect his people in captivity, and to help them remain faithful by giving them visions of the future that remind them that God is sovereign and he is in control of all human history. And now the book of Daniel itself is, is written at some point in the 6th century B.C., and if you kind of look in the book and you read all of the, the biographical information that's contained there, you'll see that it roughly spans the years of 605 to 522 B.C. It is also 12 chapters long, and it can be divided up in a couple of ways. 
The first one is by language. And so chapters 1 and 8 through 12 are written in Hebrew, and then chapters 2 through 7 are written in Aramaic. And if you don't know anything about Aramaic, that is okay. But the one thing you probably do need to know is that Aramaic in that day was considered the universal language, right? Most of the people, Jews and non-Jews, knew that language. And this suggests that this section of Daniel was meant to be a witness to both Jews and non-Jews, while then chapters 8 to 12 are for God's people as he explains his grand purposes for the future for them. Secondly, and more commonly, this book is actually divided into two halves. There's the biographical part, so chapters 1 to 6 are mainly biographical. And then chapters 7 to 12 are mainly about future visions. And if you have spent any time in the book of Daniel, if you spend any time reading these future visions, you will notice a couple of things. One, um, they are describing future events using non-human symbols. And so as you look at those future events, you'll see things like statues and beasts and animals. And like the book of Revelation, this is what is called apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature. And then two, if you've spent time reading it, they are very hard to understand. What the heck are they actually about? And so with that in mind, I want to give you a simple chart. And this is going to help you understand um, a little bit about these visions and then kind of what um, empires and rulers they're actually supposed to represent. So in Daniel chapter 2, there's um, a vision of a statue. And most scholars agree that this statue and its parts represent um, the empire of Babylon, then after it, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, and then there's a future portion that looks to the kingdom of God. And then the vision of the four beasts in chapter 7 is also Babylon, Medo-Persia, Medo Greece, Rome, and then likewise, there's also uh, a future aspect of the kingdom of God there. Then in chapter 8, it's looking at two empires, the Medo-Persian and the Greek Empire. Chapter 9, you get this short section about the 70 weeks, and that actually spans all of that time, it, in a very short time, basically kind of spans from Babylon all the way to the kingdom of God. Chapter 10 is a vision of an angel. Chapter 11, the kings of the north and south. It's a, it's a really kind of uh, particular look at Greece and then connects it to the future kingdom of God to come. And then the end. So chapter 12 is all about the end and then the coming kingdom of God. And now again, I realize that this chart, it's not going to help you to understand all the nuances of every vision and exactly what this and that means, but that, that's not the point anyways. The point of this book and its visions, as I mentioned earlier, was and is to show God's people his purposes for them, and that he is sovereign and in control of all events in all of human history. And in, doing, and in so doing, it is meant to help both the Jews in exile in us today to remain faithful to God in the face of trials, persecutions, tribulations, and conflicts, so that hopefully we are able to endure in faith to the end. And so with that in mind, I have three points from the book of Daniel this morning that hopefully will give us clarity about our world, will help us to rest and trust in God's sovereignty over all things, and will give us the necessary encouragement to live in light of the reality that the end is coming. So the first point for this morning is this. Don't be surprised by trials, persecution, and global conflict. Daniel 7, verses 23 to 25 say this. 
Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth, and trample it down, and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. So these verses are a part of the interpretation that Daniel received in kind of his second major vision of the four beasts in Daniel 7. And to help you kind of put these verses in context, Daniel received a vision where he saw a lion creature with wings in verse 4, uh, a bear with three ribs in its mouth in verse 5, a leopard with four wings and heads in verse 6, and then an unidentified beast that it says was terrifying, dreadful, and exceedingly strong and had iron teeth and ten horns in verse 7. And when Daniel saw this, it says in verse 15 that, that, that within him he was, he was anxious and that the thoughts of his head alarmed him. And so what he did is he saw a man kind of standing off here, which is probably an angel, and he goes over to this man and he's like, what the heck is going on? Like, what does this represent? And the person responded in Daniel 7, 17. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. And now, if you remember that chart that I showed you just a minute ago, most commentators believe that the four kings or empires represent, represented here are the Babylonians, that would be the lion, the Medo-Persians, that's the bear, the Greeks, that's the leopard, and the unidentified beast with the iron teeth and the ten horns is more than likely the Roman Empire. And I say more than likely because, again, there are debates out there, and I'm, I'm not going to claim super authority in this, in this area. And the fact that they're depicted as beasts who devour shows us that these nations and rulers and empires are strong, that they are ruthless, and that they're all about amassing their own power and glory at any cost. Meaning that the world from the 6th century B.C. all the way through the 5th century A.D., if in fact that fourth beast is Rome, that it was going to be a messy place. It was going to be a messy place full of conflict and war. But the vision doesn't stop there. <clears throat> because Daniel, in 7.19, asks to know the truth about the fourth beast with its ten horns. And again... Though many believe that that fourth beast and its ten horns is talking about the Roman Empire, he says that there's another horn and another king that comes up after that. And we learn of that particular king that he shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Now, even though many commentators believe that this might be pointing to the Antichrist to come, the truth is, we don't know. I don't know. But what's important here is that we have within this vision a world that is full of chaos. It's full of destruction. It's full of war. It's full of, it's full of the rise and fall of nations. And while all that's going on, we have God's name being blasphemed, and we have his people being worn out, killed, and persecuted. Because God wants the exiles and all who would read this vision to be ready, to understand that hard times and trials and persecutions and global conflicts are coming, 
and they're going to continue for a long time. And now let's take a moment right now and think about where we are at today. We're living in a time where conflict and war are raging. We, of course, have Russia and Ukraine at war. Uh, terrorist attacks are rampant in places like Africa, Afghanistan, and Iraq. Civil war is currently consuming Myanmar, where just in the last year, over 1,000 people or 100,000 people have been killed. And we are in the midst of one of the largest genocides in history, where according to the World Health Organization, in the last year, roughly 74 million babies were aborted worldwide. And then also when we look into the persecution of Christians across the globe, we find that according to the advocacy group Open Doors, that about 360 million Christians were persecuted in 2022 across the globe. And when we hear these things, man, it can cause us to worry, can it? It can cause us to be full of fear. It can cause us to doubt God as if somehow this was unexpected. But this is exactly what he was trying to prepare us for in Daniel 7. And it's also what Christ told us would happen in Matthew 24, verses 6 through 9, when he says, And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And these are but the beginning of the birth pains. And then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And so realizing this, what should actually su surprise us in America is the reality that most of us have not experienced these kinds of trials or hardships or persecutions, these things that, that many of our brothers and sisters throughout history and throughout the world have, have experienced and are experiencing. But it also shouldn't surprise us if they come. None of us here should be under the illusion that our country is experiencing a spiritual revival. Right? It seems like the exact opposite is happening. Truth is becoming increasingly subjective or optional. Talk of God or even a basic knowledge of God is becoming rarer among younger generations. The basic premises of morality, gender, marriage, and sexuality that have existed in our society from its foundation are being challenged and continually redefined. And rapidly, what we believed was our right to the free exercise of religion is quickly being labeled as bigoted hate speech. This is what Paul writes about in 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 and 4, when he says, For a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to truth and wander off into myths. And if we add to this fact that America has enemies across the globe, we have a debt issue that's completely out of control, and a ton of political infighting, we could quickly find ourselves in a nation that is either on the brink of collapse, or for us as Christians, we are enduring an increase in persecution for our faith in Christ. But God in his goodness through Daniel, through Christ, through Paul, and through others, has shown us that this is exactly what was supposed to happen, right? This is exactly what was supposed to happen. 
So instead of running in fear, instead of being surprised that the world is ultimately acting like the world and doing evil things, we should instead take heart. Take heart that God knew this would happen and it did not catch him by surprise. And that it is all a part of his plan. It is all a part of his plan to bring about his grand purposes for the flourishing of his kingdom and for the good of us as his people. And that brings us to our second point for this morning. Rest secure because God is sovereign and in the end Christ wins. Daniel chapter 2 verses 19 through 22. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of the God for of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. So in Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream about a giant statue that he doesn't understand. And so what he does is he calls his magicians, his enchanters, and his sorcerers, and they're supposed to not only tell him what the dream is, but then they're also supposed to interpret it for him. And when they can't do it, he gets a little cranky. And he decides that he is going to kill all of them. And that includes Daniel and his friends. But by God's grace, Daniel finds out what's happening. He prays to God for help, and in God's goodness, God reveals the dream in its interpretation to him. And it is revealed to him that this dream shows a giant statue with a gold head, arms and a chest of silver, bronze thighs, and legs of iron and feet, partially of iron and clay. And like Daniel 7, most scholars believe that this vision is about the same kind of four nations that the, that the beasts represent. Babylon is the head of gold, Medo-Persia Medo is the arms and the chest of silver, uh, the Greek empire is the bronze thighs, and the Roman Empire is the iron legs and the iron feet mixed with clay. But what's more important than the statue itself or kind of exactly what nations it represents is what comes next in the vision. Here's what Daniel says in Daniel 2, 34 and 35. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet and, uh, of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the, summer, of, the, of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Do you see it? This is the kingdom of God manifesting itself in the course of human history. This stone that was not made by human hands will break the statue to pieces so that all the pieces of these kingdoms and these rulers will be like chaff and will disappear. And we know from the New Testament that this stone, the stone of this prophecy, which is also talked about in Psalm 118.22, is in fact Jesus Christ. As Peter writes in Acts 4, 11 and 12, or says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 
And then likewise, Jesus in Luke 20, 16 through 18, and this is right at the end of the parable of the bad tenants. He says this, he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyards to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush them. All of the fierce nations and all the rulers who will come and all of the world and all of the conflict and all the persecutions that they're going to bring with them, they will be crushed by God through Christ. And not only will he destroy all the rulers, but he will also bring, him a new, bring with him a new and everlasting kingdom. As it says in Daniel 2, 44 and 45. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation, sure. So all the kingdoms and rulers of this world will be destroyed by God. And yet what will remain will be another kingdom, a heavenly kingdom that was inaugurated on earth by the death of Christ the cornerstone on the cross. And when his kingdom comes fully and completely, it will become a great mountain and will fill the whole earth. And that's according to Daniel 2.35. And it will stand and it will exist forever and ever. And to be sure that the king understood the seriousness and the magnitude of what was happening Daniel ends his vision by saying this in verse 45. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, its interpretation sure. This is Daniel telling King Nebuchadnezzar that the one true God, Yahweh, the great God, that he is sovereign and he is in control of all things, which means that this dream and its interpretation are sure and it is fixed and it will happen according to his definite will, and plan. And if you hear nothing else this morning, this is the resounding message of the book of Daniel, that God is sovereign, and in the end, Christ wins. That's all you need to know. God is sovereign, and in the end, Christ wins. He is sovereign over all world powers and wars and tragedies. He is in control of every persecution and conflict that will come because he has told us that they would happen according to his definite plan so that he can build his kingdom until that great day that Christ comes back. And if you're here this morning, if you are feeling anxious, if you are feeling worn out, if you are struggling to believe that God is going to accomplish his kingdom purposes for his people, if you watch the news and everything that you see just freaks you out, I want you to stop. I want you to open your ears in your heart and listen and just receive the food of God's word that he has for us this morning just listen to these words directly from his word 
Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the cloud of heaven, there came one like a son of man, that is Christ. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Then Daniel 7, 27. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the peoples of the saints of the Most High. That's us. That's you and me. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Then in Daniel 12:1, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as, ne such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And then in Revelation 7, 9 and 10, after this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then finally, in Revelation 22, verses 12 and 13, Behold, I am coming soon bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Children loved by God, rest secure today. Your God and my God is sovereign and in control of all things. I don't think we can say that enough, by the way. And I think we need to say it again and again until we believe it. He will accomplish his grand purposes for us as his people. And in the end, our God, our Savior, our friend, and our Lord Jesus Christ is coming back. He's going to win. And so then, in light of these realities, the fact that persecution, trials, global conflict, they're going to happen. They're going to happen for a long time. But then also, in light of the fact that we serve a sovereign God who's over it all, and that God, in the end, through Christ, wins, how are we supposed to live in light of that? How do we stand strong in light of those realities as his people? And that's the last point for this morning. That we need to live in light of the end. Daniel chapter 11, verses 32, 33, and then 35. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame and by captivity and plunder. And some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. So I think that Daniel chapter 11 is one of the most amazing chapters of apocalyptic 
prophecy. And again, I would encourage you, even if you just have time, just go and read that particular chapter. And it is so detailed. It is so detailed in everything that it describes that it easily finds its fulfillment in the Medo-Persians being overthrown by the Greeks and then the rise and fall of the Greek Empire. But one particular person that shows up in this prophecy is a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, who reigned from 175 B.C. to 164 B.C. And now I'm not going to give you the details of all of this. In fact, I was just schooled by Ron Poppy on a history lesson out there, and it's fascinating, right? There is so much uh, to be learned about this period of history, um, and it's so good. If you have time and want to go study it, do that or talk to Ron, because he knows what he's talking about. Um, he says he's going to bring me some books, I guess. So, um, But if you read Daniel 11, uh, 21 through 39, you, you, you very quickly realize that this is not a good dude. And when you look to history, we learn that he killed roughly about 80,000 Jews. He stopped them from sacrificing and offering burnt offerings in the temple. And he even set up an altar, in, particularly in the temple, devoted to Zeus. And then just to sort of like stick it to the Jews, he decided that he was going to sacrifice a pig on that altar, right? And in verse 32, it also says that he tried to seduce some of the Jews with flattery and would entice some of them to turn against God's covenant. But here's the important part for us, because it also says this, that the people who know their God will stand firm and take action. The people who know their God will stand firm and take action. And if we are God's children who believe in his sovereign rule and that Christ is returning, then we are called to the same thing. But what does that mean today? How do we do that? And what I have for you to sort of end this sermon is I have four quick things that I want to leave you with to help each one of us be a people who not only stand firm in our faith, but also take action and live for Christ in the midst of a crooked and evil world. And all four of these, they come right from the book of Daniel. And the first one is this. We must believe. 11.32. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. This isn't some, like, amazing, mind-blowing point, and I get that, but it is super important that we must be a people who continually set our minds and hearts on the hard work of knowing and believing God's word. Now, in one sense, that might seem easy, but every day we are tempted Right? We are tempted to turn away from God's word. We are tempted to believe lies of the world versus believing the truth of God's word. But we must resist this, this temptation, and instead, we must daily make choices to not only read God's word, but to know it and walk by faith in its promises. That, in fact, is one of the, the whole goals of the, Christian's li of the Christian life, to know God and to walk in obedience to his commands. As Paul writes in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind 
knowing God's word, sinking it deep into our hearts, believing God's word, living by God's word, that by testing it, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So that's the first thing. We must believe. Secondly, we must pray. Daniel 6.10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had uh, windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. So if you know anything about Daniel 6, again, um, the, some of the other counselors for the king basically went to him and said, oh, counselor, we basically need to make a, or king, we need to make a law that says that nobody can pray to anybody else except for you. And so the king was like, sweet, that's a great idea. And so they drew up the document, the king signed it, and then as soon as Daniel heard it, what does he do? I think this is, I, I find this to be absolutely amazing. That instead of cowering, instead of running in fear, Daniel goes up to his room, he gets on his knees, and he prays. And yet we know the outcome of that situation. Daniel was thrown in the lion's den, and yet by God's grace, because of his prayers, Daniel was saved. And now I realize that every situation doesn't work out like that. There's a lot of things that many of you maybe have prayed for and things that haven't come to fruition, right? That happens. But we do have this promise. One, that we have a God who calls us to pray, and he says that when we pray according to his will, when we pray according to his will, he hears us and he answers. 1 John 5, 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. So if we are to live and endure to the end, we must, we must, we must be a people of prayer. And we need to be a people that believe that prayer actually works. One of the reasons that I believe that prayerlessness is so rampant in the church is because we don't believe that it actually does anything. And yet God is continually reminding us, you can see all over Scripture. If I had time to lay out all those verses, I would. But you can see all over Scripture that if we pray, we ask anything in his name according to his will, he hears us and will answer. So that's the second point. We must pray. Third, we must teach. First part of Daniel 11.33 says, And the wise among the people shall make many understand. Now the implications of this tiny verse are too many to expound right at this moment. But I will say that we are surrounded all the time by people whose thoughts are shaped entirely by present realities versus eternal realities. Friends and family members and co-workers and neighbors who know nothing of Christ. And we all have been given the command by God. He says, go, make disciples, teach them the ultimate realities of God. Because the great commission of Matthew 28, 19 and 20 isn't just for a select few. It isn't just for me. It isn't just for Pastor Dan. It isn't just for elders and deacons or other leaders in the church. It is for all believers 
for all time for every person who calls themselves a believer in Jesus Christ. It is for you, if that is you this morning. And if that feels scary to you, remember that you are not alone. For Christ says to his disciples at the end of the Great Commission, he says in the second half of Matthew 28, 20, and behold, I am with you always. Because they would have been scared as well, right? Because Jesus is getting ready to go. But he says, no, no. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I'm here. I'll be with you. I'll lead you. I'll guide you. I'll help you. Going out, sharing the good news with others, I will make it effective. I will transform lives through you. Only be faithful. Teach them. Show them who I am. I am God. There is no other. That's the third thing. And then finally, we must resist. Daniel 11.33, And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. The point is that we must be a people who stand on truth. Even if it costs us. If it costs us our jobs, if it costs us family relationships, if it costs us our home, our church building for us as the church, or tax-exempt status, if they throw us in jail, even if they take our life, like we must stand firm on the word of God. We must not back down. We must not compromise because remember, our God is sovereign and our Savior Jesus Christ is coming back soon. And if we take action, if we stand firm, and we remain faithful until the end of our days, we too, we will receive the fulfillment of the promise given to Daniel. And it's the verse that we open with, Daniel 12, 13. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest and stand in your allotted places at the end of the days. Let's pray.